So we'll start. Welcome to this uh, meeting. I, I really want to welcome all of you. Uh, for those that don't know me, I'm uh, Francois Cohen, so I'm a research officer at the Grand Farm Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment, not very far from here. My uh, research topics are, uh, of course, about the environment, but more precisely, uh, I'm working on energy efficiency related issues. And uh, very recently, we've published uh, with colleagues of mine, French colleagues of mine, a Grand Farm research paper on uh, uh, consumer myopia in the refrigerator market. Um, so for those that are fans on the internet, you can use the hashtag uh, and follow us on Twitter. So the hashtag is CarbonWar. And please uh, keep your phones on silent, above all because you are being recorded. So it would be a shame that uh, everybody can see that you, you can't uh, do this very simple thing. So. We'll be, of course, hearing from uh, Jeremy Leggett. Uh, he will also be launching a new project, but I will keep the suspense on, so I won't be telling you anything about this. And after his lecture, you will have the chance to, to, uh, to ask him some uh, questions. Um, so um, for, for the context of this uh, meeting, so uh, LSE uh, Sustainability have a series of uh, uh, lectures, in practice lectures, and as you know, LSE is very committed to sustainable development. We have uh, won a few awards. Uh, for example, we have been, uh, it's the fifth consecutive time that LSE is awarded the first class award in the People and Planet Green League. Uh, but in our everyday life also, there is much work done by LSE Sustainability. Uh, for example, you all know the recycling bins that we have uh, in here, but it's not the only initiative that is made and definitely we want to reduce the uh, carbon footprint and in general the environmental impact of the school and it's the work of LSE Sustainability and we should really thank them for this. So why are we here? So we're here to, to hear about Jeremy Leggett. So he's a green energy entrepreneur and you may uh, know him uh, first of all because he has founded uh, a very uh, successful company that's Solar Century and it's the UK largest independent uh, solar electric company. But he has done many things in his life. Uh, he has uh, been, uh, he has done Greenpeace in the 80s. He was a consultant in the oil industry for, he taught at the Royal School of Mines at Imperial. And at the start, if I understood it well, you are a geologist by training. Um, Leggett is also a founder and the chairman of a charity that's uh, the charity Solar Aid, and uh, the commitment of these charities to provide uh, uh, access to uh, solar lights in uh, remote areas in developing countries. And he is also the chairman of the track Carbon Tracker Initiative. That's a think tank which uh, looks at the carbon embedded in equity markets. So I will now let uh, Jeremy speak by uh, his own, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing from his lecture as you can be. Well, thank you, Francois, and thank you all for coming along um, and, and listening after a, a hard day at work, no doubt. So the, um, the project is a book, but it's different in two ways. First of all, it's going to be free. I'm fed up with the publishing industry. And secondly, it's going to be um, a serial. So it's covering a live set of dramas that are playing out right now in energy markets. 
um, and will do all the way through to the all-important Paris Climate Summit in December. And the last scene will be the last night of um, the Paris Climate Summit. So today, um, I want to just start with a few thoughts about this analogy, why I call it a carbon war. And um, some people on Twitter today and in emails have said, and I think quite rightly, why do you, you, know, why do you use that analogy? It's uh, surely not appropriate. No shots are being fired. I want to sort of talk about that just for a, a little while. It's a personal view, of course. Um, and uh, I want to describe why I feel that way about this set of dramas. Um, then I'll talk about why I think we're winning the carbon war. I think that um, there can be um, a good or civilised outcome to this complex set of dramas. I may be wrong, but that's the feeling I have right now, and I want to try and persuade you um, that that's... Um, a viable way of thinking in the, the talk. And um, I base my arguments on three emerging megatrends, which I'll get to, and I'll run through each one in turn and the, and the evidence that is emerging for them. Then I want to tell you three stories from the book, but of course they're, by definition, they're incomplete stories. They're just storylines, really. And I think I chose three of the particularly acute dramas um, in, in the last part of the talk. So, um, why are we dealing with a war, an, an analogy, and, and a civil war? That's what it feels like to me. Uh, first of all, we have an incumbency in energy that is generally taking us in a direction. Everyone here, you've given up your evenings, you know all this. I'm not going to dwell on it. That is the road to four to six degrees, depending on the assumptions that we make. There's an artist's impression of it. And the impacts of that, you don't have to believe people like me who used to work for Greenpeace. You just talk to the military actually on both sides of, of the Atlantic, never mind the climate scientists, and they'll tell you that the spreading um, tableau of drought, uh, flood and wildfire is going to visit, if we allow it to keep growing, going to visit effects on economies akin to those of war. Um, and we also know that there's an insurgency uh, with an array of technologies, strategies, tactics, which could solve this problem, that could take us to um, a zero emission or zero net emission world if we so desired. Um, and these currently form a minority of the global energy system, but could easily uh, replace the incumbency. So we have an incumbency and an insurgency, um, that in itself is a very rich stage for a lot of confrontation and very often, um, as I shall explain, confrontation. But in terms of the ultimate challenge, I think there are reasons to be encouraged. I mean, we're talking about system change in energy, and this, after all, is nothing new. We've done it, or rather our ancestors have done it twice before. The switch from coal to oil and natural gas at the level of 75% or thereabouts of a global energy system. Um, and before that, the switch from wood to coal. So we have to do it again. We have to do it with low-carbon technologies, renewables, and efficient technology, plus or minus nuclear, depending on your predilection for that particular technology. And we have to do it on roughly the same kind of scale, maybe a bit deeper and a bit faster than we have before. But it, this should not be beyond our wit to do, and the imperatives are all there for 
those um, with, with ears open and eyes to see. We have to back out of this, not quickly, not suddenly, as the Shell CEO said we all want over, uh, overnight, uh, but over a period of decades at a rate of maybe 2% a year, a few percent a year. It's a, it can be an organized retreat. Uh, we need to accelerate this. We need a lot more of this. We need a lot more of that. A lot more of this on residential properties and all the paraphernalia that goes with the low carbon building, which it's perfectly feasible to do. Solar Century has done this. Other companies have done this any number of times now. Uh, we need quite a lot of this, um, accelerated development of all these existing technologies um, and their hydrogen equivalents. And, of course, in the transition, we can also use quite a lot of that. And that, in this instance, is gas. And it's gas used in um, combination with solar. You can see the solar roofs. This is actually down the, down the road in Woking. Um, and there's a, a small gas-fired CHP unit, and you see the perfect marriage of gas and solar in the transition. In the summer months, the solar can do most of what's needed. In the winter months, it can't, um, in this country at least, and so that's where the gas kicks in. So all this should be doable if we lived in a rational world that responded to obvious, clear and present dangers like climate change. But sadly, we don't live in such a world, and this is one of the reasons why it feels like a civil war to me. Um, this gentleman, Mr. Mestreye, the chief executive of GDF Suez, um, I heard him and I describe all this at the World Energy Congress in October last year, an exercise in cognitive dissonance, if ever there was one for a person like me, I explained to all his hundreds of peers that the business model was gas can do everything, everything, he said, electricity, power, and deal with climate change, because, of course, it's cleaner than coal. Uh, what needs to happen? Well, we've got to end all these subsidies. The renewables are a problem. They're getting in the way of this transparently rational model that he has. Um, and it doesn't stop there with rhetoric and policy. We all know they have external relations budgets. I get told this by all sorts of people, including memorably one very senior guilt-stricken executive in the PR industry who took me out for coffee one day and said, Jeremy, they are using black arts to try and kill you. Now, he didn't mean literally kill me, he didn't mean even my company, but just to set back the uh, insurgency. And they do this very well. Um, they use all sorts of ploys and friendly faces in the media so that if one day um, you have a lot of wind and you have a gearbox failure with a wind turbine, you can guarantee, guarantee you're pretty... Um, high chance of getting on the front page of the Daily Mail. I mean the shock, the horror, the cities that have to be evacuated, the human lives that are threatened by this mechanical failure on the front page. And there are others, of course, their favourite um, piece of disinformation, which is that your escalating energy bills are due to green taxes or green shit, as the Prime Minister apparently called them on one famous occasion. No reference to the wholesale price of gas, which anyone who knows the first thing about it knows is the primary part of that 
escalation. And occasionally we get windows into how bad this can be. This is the New York Times. Um, actually, an energy industry exec leaked and filmed even a talk by one of their top lobbyists about what they, the energy industry executives, had to do in order to win the war. This is an endless war, he said. So you see now why someone like me begins to feel as though um, he is indeed in a civil war. You have to, he said, win ugly or lose pretty. Um, and this is the kind of uh, advice that's been given to energy industry executives, certainly on the other side of the Atlantic, but some version of it, hopefully a bit more civilized on this side of the Atlantic. And so therefore, you know, when you're um, the founder of a, um, a renewable energy company, you find yourself doing things that you wouldn't normally have to do in a rational world. Every form of energy needs subsidies every single form of energy. Um, ours actually aren't needed for more than a few years, but what we do need is for them, the feed-in tariffs, for those of you who follow this particular drama, we do need them to derogate, to rack down in a sustainable manner. That's not what happens. What happens is you get ambush cuts that really mess up your business model and really affect uh, investor confidence. And we know why that's happening. That's happening because of oil and gas lobbying and placement of executives on secondment from these big energy companies in Whitehall ministries. How do we know this? I get told it. Um, by civil servants, you know, on a trust basis, and also actually by politicians, including very senior politicians. So this is what goes on. This is why it feels like a civil war. There are, of course, peace talks. The um, ongoing climate negotiations often feel to me, I saw multilateral negotiations in the Cold War. They feel very similar, the test ban negotiations and so forth at the climate summit. And just as with wars, the Vietnam War, for example, um, young people particularly tend to get very exercised by the stakes, as you would be with your future at stake, and get arrested in very large numbers by the police, as happened in Copenhagen. There's also a thing about, you know, the jobs. So people who rock up to work uh, face a very different spectrum of danger. There are no bullets in this war, but people die. And if you think about the coal mining chop rate uh, globally and particularly in China, this is not a pretty picture. To be fair, it's not perfectly safe out on a roof installing solar roof tiles. There are no free lunches in energy, but it's a much better risk tableau. And then when things go really wrong in the incumbency industries, the death rate is ghastly and often not a pleasant way to die at all. So this is the background for my sort of uh, somewhat boyish um, thought that it feels like a civil war. I do admit I had um, too many toy soldiers when I was a, kid, was a boy, and that may have something to do with it. I absolutely accept that. Um, but anyway, it's one person's view, all right? And my argument now is going to be we're winning this conflict. And the three mega trends are insurgency costs down, incumbency costs up, and environmental action. Let's go 
through them. The first emerging megatrend is the cost down in the insurgency. This is a Chinese solar manufacturing plant. Such plants didn't exist in uh, 2000, and yet now uh, more than half the world's manufacturing, well over half, is done there in vast factories. The very first scene of the book, I describe one of these factories from a couple of years ago, and this is all about economics. So if we look over a 40-year time frame of fossil fuel projects, most fossil fuel projects are 30, 40-year outlays of capital. So if we're talking about a centralized power plant or a mine or an oil field, you money is deployed for this sort of period. And the prices of, it doesn't matter about the details, but a number of um, different types of fossil fuel projects, you, you see bumbling along the bottom there. And over that 40-year period, solar PV prices wouldn't even have appeared on the scale until about 2006. In 2006, they did appear on the scale way up at that little dot there. What happened next, if you haven't seen this before, it will come as a surprise, is that... Um, since 2006, and these analysts who describe it from Alliance Bernstein have a very graphic term for it. They call it the Terror Dome, uh, and it's because of the steepness of it and the way uh, that it invokes terror in the energy incumbency because of the threat in concert with other things that it um, represents to their business models. And this isn't just one set of analysts. This is a general thing in the uh, financial services industry. Most investment banks have very bullish analyses for you to read now on this stuff. My favorite, if I have to choose one prop, is by UBS recently, um, the world's biggest private bank, urging investors to join the solar revolution. And not just because of the solar cost and price down, but because of the link through to transport. And in Solar Century, we know about this because this is a group of low-income buildings that we did with SSE, one of our investors, a few years ago. All the electricity in those buildings is provided by our solar roof tiles. Um, and there's enough left over to charge the community car. The wire only goes one way into the battery in the car. But of course, in the future, it's going to go two ways. The cars themselves are going to be power plants as well as the batteries in the home. This is a bit of a, um, a, a dense diagram, so bear with me. There aren't many of this kind. I've deliberately tried to keep the, uh, these kinds of charts to a minimum. But it shows why um, UBS is so bullish. It shows the battery costs down, actual and projected, of... Um, uh, the batteries that are being developed largely for the electric vehicle industry. It shows the projections of EV sales in Europe, and they don't even get up to 10% by 2025, but still the volumes of electric vehicles that will be produced there are such to produce amazing economics. And there you see in the bottom diagram the amazing economics. By 2020, in the red bar chart there, you will be able to buy yourself a solar roof an electric, a respectable electric vehicle to put in the yard and um, travel around in and batteries to cover all the electricity you'll need in the home. You'll be able to do that with a 7.6-year um, payback on your capital investment and, most important of all, um, a rate of return, annualised rate of return in excess of 7% before tax. 
And they argue in this report that the queues will be coming out of uh, IKEA for long distances for people wanting this kind of security. Energy security to keep the lights on, financial security because their pensions are going to be fundamentally unable to match this kind of return um, within just a few years. So it's not just the industries, it's not just the analysts in the investment banks. We should, after all, think twice about believing everything they tell us. Um, but it's what other companies are doing. And a couple of snapshots of that. This is Apple advertising um, on the back page of national newspapers all over the place. They want us to be going solar uh, and copying them with the solar that they're using to power their distribution um, centers. Now, this is actually being picked up by the conservative press as well. So um, what I'm telling you is not controversial. This is the international business editor of the Daily Telegraph. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor read this stuff over their cornflakes or whatever they have for breakfast. And what does he say in April 2013? Global solar dominance in sight as science trumps fossil fuels. And this is their cost up and our cost down that he's talking about. Um, in the favourite organ of the Conservative Party. And so, um, despite all the efforts to hold us back, renewables for the first time in 2013 in terms of new annual electricity additions exceeded all fossil fuels and nuclear put together. That was the first time it had happened. That's the mix of the species there. And you can see solar, the technology I um, know best, um, of course, but not a technology that's a magic bullet. You have to mix and match in the renewables family uh, for optimum performance is really, you can see, the terror dome at work there in the yellow part of the bar chart. Um, but there's a lot of wind and there's a lot of hydropower as well. And as though to confirm this uh, trend uh, is serious, we now have the first big energy company that has turned tail and done a 180-degree uh, reversal of its business plan in the face of this kind of emerging um, economics and it's Germany's biggest utility, E.ON, forgive me if you know this, but they split in December into two companies, a sort of energy bad bank to park all the um, legacy assets and run them for cash, uh, and a new co which will just focus on um, renewables and efficiency and all that green stuff that for a long time this company uh, played an active role in trying to hold back itself. So they've turned, we've had the first utility to turn, and the question is um, that exercises many of us who talk to these companies, especially you know, people like me who I used to be one of them, you know, and for 11 years I was essentially a creature of the oil and gas industry. The question is when is the first oil and gas company going to turn? I don't think it's going to happen in the year ahead, but there are some deep deliberations going on. And let's look at the additional reason for that, which is emerging megatrend 2, and it's their cost up. Let's have a look at CapEx, capital expenditure. This is what you deploy to, you know, find more oil fields, find more coal mines, um, and develop them. CapEx. So forgive me if I use that term if, if uh, you haven't heard it before. It's used a lot in the financial sector. The CapEx of the top 11 oil and gas companies, you can see there between 2000 and 2012, um, inflated from $50 billion to $260 billion. This is 
basic cost up in what they're having to shell out, if you pardon the pun, on the frontiers to actually go get more oil, gas, and coal. Meanwhile, from 2005 onwards, what happened to the total production of these top 11 oil companies? Why? It fell, and it continues to fall. So we have now had peak capex and trough production. Uh, this is a pattern that's reflected globally as well. And you have to ask yourself, where is this business model going? These companies are getting less and less profitable because they're having to basically deploy more costs and they're getting less and less income and profit. Now, they will tell you they're going to innovate their way out of this mess. All right. If you've got a pension to invest, you can believe that, but you believe it, I would submit, at your peril. Let's look at the CapEx in a bit more detail and look at it globally. This is now carbon tracker work. My wonderful group of um, star analysts who I'm very privileged to be the chair of, um, whilst in no way uh, possessing the kinds of skill sets that they do, um, have done a number of reports that have been very, very um, influential. This was the April 2013 uh, one where we looked at the CapEx globally and totted it up in 2013. The figure was 674 billion for the top 200 publicly quoted oil, gas, and coal companies. Keep that figure in mind because what comes next is, um, is interesting to sort of peg against that figure. The other um, figures, don't worry about that too much. Let's just talk about the capex because this is where, as it were, the, the pressure really is on these companies. A couple of examples, um, frontier oil and gas. So the top left is Kashagan, um, a giant oil field in Kazakhstan. If you're not following this particular drama, then um, I recommend doing so because it's redolent with theatre. I often feel, studying all this stuff, that life is weirder than art. And this is one instance. This field is called Cashel Gone in Shell. Um, it was found in 2000. It's one of the biggest oil fields that's ever been found. And the bill was supposed to be $10 billion, thereabouts. That's, that's pretty steep, even in 2000. Um, and they were going to bring it online in 2005. This oil field still hasn't come online. It's going to be two years before it ever has a chance of coming online. The CapEx bill is now... $50 billion, remember the global total of 600 and something, and um, the question is, arises whether it will ever produce any oil, because just before, um, in last year, there was a period when some oil was eventually produced, but it was so acidic that it ate all the pipe work in the... In the uh, in the rigs, and that's why they now have two years with um, the shelling out of much more capex. Slightly, they're like gamblers in a casino. You, at some point, you'd think they'd they'd ask themselves, actually, should we cut our losses here? Are we ever going to make this monster work? But they don't. And offshore Brazil is even more extreme an example. Um, there, the oil is really deep. It's very far offshore, a lot of it, uh, so far that helicopters have to refuel in flight to get to the rigs, um, and it's buried under salt, rock salt great thick columns of rock salt. For those of you who know anything about geology, this is when the oceans evaporated serially many millions of years ago. And drilling through that stuff is incredibly difficult. The CapEx bill 
for Petrobras in order to deliver this massive amount of oil that's down there. Make no mistake, it's there, the oil. The question is, can they get it up? Can they get it up economically? The CapEx bill for this is $221 billion over the next five years. I like the one, you know, the precision they have in the, in the estimates here. 221. Now, um, those of you who have been watching the oil price will have noticed it has plunged since... Um, last summer, and that's largely because of an abundance of production from American shale. Um, and the cancellations of CapEx, the last report I saw in Bloomberg, the cancellations of CapEx in the oil and gas industry stood at $200 billion. And these guys in Brazil, by the way, they're being investigated for their own police for systemic um, fraud and corruption, and they're being investigated by the U.S. Um, SEC as well, are going to have to go out and persuade people who run pension funds to dish them out $221 billion. A couple of other stories on the right-hand side that I will leave for the time being. And again, you know, um, it's not just ne'er-do-well um, muckrakers like myself who are uh, observing what's going on here. Here's the conservative press once again. Fossil fuel industry is the subprime danger of this cycle. That's Ambrose Evans Pritchard again, talking about more than $5 trillion shelled out over the last six years. And as he puts it, in the Telegraph, read by the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. Little has come of it. So one more complex, bit complex, diagram from Carbon Tracker's work. This is now the May 2014 oil report, where the analysts crawled all through for the first time one of the industry databases and um, divided up the entire global industry into where oil is being produced, where it's intended to be produced, reserves and resources, and looked at the cost of production. And obviously what you get is a rising curve. Some oil is cheap to produce, relatively cheap, and that's in Saudi Arabia and such places. Some is very expensive to produce. That's in the tar sands, it's in the Arctic, it's in the deep water offshore. And you can see that curve there. And what we did was we said that at $95 oil price back then, the oil price was in excess of 100 there would be more than a trillion dollars of capex at risk of being completely stranded or wasted, whatever term you want to use, by 2025. That was our argument in May of 2014. Um, in December of 2014, the vampire squid looked at... Um, that, that's a term that disrespectful people in the financial services industry used to describe Goldman Sachs. Um, the, the, the Goldman Sachs looked at this problem and they con concluded that at $70 oil price, a trillion dollars of zombie investments were on the table. That was their term. We were rather more circumspect in our report, but this is Goldman Sachs language, zombie investments. You wouldn't want to be involved in them. Um, and as though this isn't bad enough, on the 1st of December, the Bank of England let it be known that it's examining um, the financial risks linked to fossil fuels um, to look at the question of whether or not these, these industries, oil, coal and gas, provide a threat to the stability of the global capital markets. 
So what drama there is there. And just a few thoughts about shale. You know, people will, will um, often say it's because the oil price is low. When the oil price goes back up again, the problem will go away. That is not the case. Even at $100 oil, there, were, there was real concern. These are Bloomberg articles from April of 2014 talking about shale drillers feasting on junk debt on a treadmill and asking whether the U.S. shale boom is going bust. And what you see here... I'm not going to bore you with the geological detail, but what you see here are lots of scars, and those scars are where drilling took place. And there are so many of them because they have to drill so many wells because the production rate in the shale drops off very quickly. It can drop off 80% in three years thereabouts. So um, they're constantly having to move on. This is why people talk about a treadmill of junk debt, um, and the entire industry is losing money hand over fist and was even at $100 oil. There were $35 billion of assets that had been written off at the time these uh, reporters from Bloomberg began to look at the problem. The other industry, uh, the other problem the industry has is just this endemic um, ability to hype and overstate things. There are so many examples of this, but I'll give you the Monterey Shale in California. Um, a study was produced by the US EIA, the, the government agency for energy information, uh, saying that in the Monterey uh, Shale there were 15 billion barrels of oil waiting to be produced. <coughs> And that was 66% of U.S. shale oil supply going forward. This gave rise to press stories all over the world talking about Saudi America, how, Saudi, how America was going to become um, a rival with Saudi Arabia in the production of oil. Um, some months went by, and a Canadian geological survey veteran by the name of David Hughes went through all the data in great detail and said, actually, guys, you have massively overstated this. Um, and lo and behold, the EIA came out and said that they agreed with him. They looked at the data again, and they were revising down that estimate for the Monterey Shale by a somewhat inconvenient 96%. Now, um, do you think that made headlines all over the world? No, it didn't. I'm here to tell you it didn't. So this is very interesting. Dave Hughes, obviously, good track record. Looked at some data, came up with a conclusion. What's Dave got to say about U.S. shale oil production generally? Most of it comes from just two plays, as they're called, the Bakken in North Dakota um, and the Eaglefoot in Texas. And let's not deal with the detail. You can see straight away um, what Dave thinks is going to happen based on industry data, not on hype trying to um, elevate share prices of drillers. He thinks it's going to peak in 2016 and go down very quickly indeed. And that was a conclusion that came out when the oil price was high. Of course, the low oil price is driving this um, even faster. Again, um, I'm sorry if there are any Telegraph readers here and, and objecting to my use of their organ, but I you know, it's, it's interesting. If I show you stuff from The Guardian, it's sort of different, right? Um, as much as I love The Guardian, he said quickly. Um, the, the Telegraph again, oil industry on borrowed time as switch to gas and shale accelerates. Well, never mind about the gas, uh, but, um, uh, sorry, gas and solar accelerates. So there's, there's um, a real 
message being put across in, in this paper on the business pages. There may be little point battling icebergs to drill in the Arctic or trying to extract oil from the deep water or beneath the layers of salt uh, when you have this trend marching down on you. More carbon tracker stuff, now looking at the carbon bubble, as it's called, stock exchange by stock exchange. I think everyone here knows about the carbon bubble. If you've given up an evening, um, I'm not going to go through this in detail. But suffice it to say, when you look at the two-degree ceiling, which many of us and many governments believe is the danger threshold we mustn't go above, then 80% of proved reserves have to stay in the ground. And if you look at where those proved reserves lie in coal, oil and gas, as we did in our very first report in August 2011, this is when the whole carbon tracker story started, you can see where they're um, deposed around the world on the stock exchanges with the different colours for the fossil fuel species, and you can see the publicly quoted stocks. So the figures you're looking at there are global figures, including the national oil, gas, and coal companies. And if we look at the pro rata publicly quoted, the ones that are on the stock exchanges where your pensions are uh, often invested, then the burnable total is 225 gigatons, billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. And the quoted carbon total reserves is 762. So, Houston, we have a problem. There is a massive overhang. We think of it as a bubble. It's not um, exactly analogous to a financial bubble. But it has led to really interesting things, including um, global warming appearing next to Justin Bieber on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine. This is where Bill McKibben wrote his famous article based on our 2011 report on which the divestment movement was based, and the divestment movement is a wonderful thing that is now um, all around the world in the process of pulling money out of fossil fuels. So far, $50 billion and counting have been withdrawn from fossil fuels because of the threat that this bubble will mean that the assets are stranded, the carbon can't be burnt, proves to be unburnable, um, and all the rest of it. And that's not just because of climate, it's also because of air quality considerations. So this is foundations, it's universities, not enough universities yet. I hope LSE will be joining this movement. It's doctors, it's churches, it's cities. Just this morning, the city of Oslo withdrew its pension fund uh, from uh, coal and tar sands. And this is a very dynamic thing. It was a divestment movement that brought down apartheid in uh, South Africa. Uh, so follow this drama. Um, I, I do strongly advise. Actually, in Carbon Tracker, we're, we're much more interested in the engagement um, argument. We're really interested in investors who stay engaged in fossil fuels. I don't think it's an either-or choice. I think you need horses for courses. And the bigger investors you know, really do find it difficult to divest, certainly totally. And so here, the pressure that can be applied because of capex and capital discipline, as the finance people call it, is, is acute. And Shell is a good example. Shell had to, was forced by investor sentiment to um, stop all its exploration in the Arctic a, a, a year or so ago. Um, they say they're going to go back this summer, but goodness knows whether they'll ever do that. Um, and what did the investors say? They said, look, 
come on, you've spent $5 billion of our money in the Arctic looking for oil and gas. You found nothing. All you've succeeded in doing is crashing a drill rig on the rocks of Alaska. That's not very good performance. In other industries, we would uh, probably be firing you, but, you know, your shell, so that may be a bit difficult. So the emerging megatrend is three, is environmental action. And uh, here I think, you know, those of us who lived through the, the failure of the Copenhagen Climate Summit saw the collapse of, you know, the mid-noughties where global warming climate change was so um, much in the news. And, but now it's coming back. Anyone who went on this demonstration in New York in November last year, as I did and will describe in the book, would know that. Um, much of it's driven, sadly, by the march of extreme events, be they floods, Texas doesn't normally look like this, or wildfires, Russia in 2009 with the smoke in Moscow, wildfires uh, just are now an endemic thing, the new normal, as we often hear in Australia in the summer, and this sort of constant drip of <laughs> depressing scientific discoveries, particularly in the Arctic, uh, which the Grantham Institute uh, institutes are very much part of. And I emphasize again, this isn't just about climate change that's driving this. In the case of, of China and um, I think to a degree India now, it's because of the disastrous air quality in cities that comes from fossil fuel consumption. So here is that amazing um, demonstration. Uh, many blocks uh, of that kind of density of people, even with polar bears attending. And um, the front of the march down on Wall Street itself, lo and behold, is that thing floating over the protesters a carbon bubble? Whatever. Um, plenty of front page coverage, and many of us hadn't seen this for a very long time. Of course, the usual things. Um, the uh, poor old polar bear got arrested by the New York Police Department. And this, um, this I think, is my ultimate example of life being weirder than art. The New York Police Department succeeded in deflating the carbon bubble. <laughs> you haven't heard this before. They did it by puncturing it on the horns of the Merrill Lynch bull <laughs> on Wall Street. Isn't that perfect? <laughs> but um, world leaders had their ears open, many of them, um, in the UN, down the road. Obama in his speech, we cannot pretend we don't hear them. And of course, depending on your perspective and the degree to which you believe in real politic, I think that he is acting on that. There is a big legacy issue for his administration. At the Lima Climate Summit, again, I'll describe this later in the book, um, there was a clear uh, rapport between the Americans and the Chinese. We'd never seen that before. They'd done a bilateral deal. I don't think that story is over. They're um, both looking at what can be done. And at that summit, we had around 100 nations making it be known that they wanted to go 100% decarbonized, net decarbonized by 2050. That would, according to the scientists, really give us a good chance of getting to two degrees. Uh, there, are, there are only, I think, well, there are less than 200 
correct me if I'm wrong here, James, um, nations involved in the negotiations, 196 involved in the negotiations. The other thing is the corporate world. The corporate world is now very engaged. The companies like IKEA and Unilever with amazing targets of their own. They both signed up, as have Virgin, to this 100% by 2050. That's code for 100% renewables in the energy mix 35 years from now. And, you know, if you think that's a stretch, have a look at pictures of Wall Street in 1901 and 1911. In 1901, you can't see a car. In 1911, you can't see a horse. So these things move very quickly when they move. Um, and ultimately, in the corporate world, 66% of the emissions come from just 90 country, companies around the world. Challenge is very simple. We either have to help them change their business model fundamentally in the directions I've been describing, or we have to put them out of business. Very simple. Their choice. So three quick stories um, before question time. Um, story one, going zero, lighting up. Now, I mean, I could talk a lot about going zero right across the piece in um, the renewables. It would be a different talk. But I just want to give you a feel for a microcosm of how this can be done. It involves lighting, displacing oil use and lighting in the developing world. Uh, if you haven't seen this picture before, it's very dramatic. It shows where most of the population lives. It shows where the sun mostly shines. And then it shows light at night. And it's just a vast, dark tract for the most part. The lit up cities in the northern hemisphere and Africa with its name, the dark continent. And even when there is light, it's kerosene, it's oil use, it's useless light. So here you see a typical scene, and right across the developing world, even where people have that light, they spend $38 billion a year. That's 20% of global lighting's total cost, all the lighting, all the everything in the world, to produce just one thousandth of the world's light, and you have to breathe the fumes, and each one of those little lanterns puts a ton of carbon dioxide. First time I heard that, I couldn't believe it. It's true. Over its lifetime into the atmosphere. So, Solar Aid, Solar Century, want to do something about this. Solar Century, we give 5% of our annual profits um, to Solar Aid. Uh, and we've created a retail brand that gives 100% of its profits back to the cause to replace the kerosene lantern with solar lanterns. And we got lucky. We found a channel to scale, and that's the achievement of the team, teams in Africa, mostly in Kenya and Tanzania. It's a remarkable story. Uh, that those people have done, and it's in two countries. So one and a half million is the lead retail um, performance in Africa, right across the continent. Number two is Total, the French oil company, who sells solar lights from their petrol filling stations. And here's some of the impact of that one and a half million lights. $200 million over the lifetime of the lights saved for the families who have them. One and a half million tons of carbon dioxide saved. Two, this is my favorite, two billion extra, extra homework hours created. And if you think that's going to be bad news for kids in Africa, go visit. You know, they're desperate to, to actually do this homework. It's not like um, where I went to school, let me tell you. 
um, uh, jobs created. And in, in, in case you think this is, this is exaggeration, we were told by the World Bank the other day that we have the best research backup team that they know of in the developing world on this. We have 12 people constantly following up on. So these are reliable statistics. And we haven't barely started. We've just uh, got um, a success story going in two countries. We've got all the rest of Africa to do. So um, very, very exciting, when, especially when you think of the upside benefits of the education. But here's the point. Here's the point. We are knocking out oil use with absolute ease. It's the easiest sell in the world. The payback is just a few weeks on deferred kerosene cost. We are killing oil. And it doesn't matter. You go in the stores. A journalist went into one of the stores and asked one of the ladies, uh, you know, where's your kerosene? You used to sell kerosene, didn't you? And she said, oh, I don't sell that anymore. Nobody wants it. There's a, there's a microcosm here. If it's that easy with lighting at the bottom of the chain, imagine, is it really that difficult going further up the chain? Story two is what I'm going to need a new word for shale, boom bust. So you get a boom um, and then it goes bust. And uh, hopefully I've uh, given you enough evidence to see why I would think that. But there is more. Because in order to make this happen in the United States, the Bush administration had to... Um, exempt the fracking process and all its toxic byproducts from anything to do with the U.S. Safe, clear, safe Drinking Water Act. Can you imagine? This is like um, an extraordinary act of deregulation. And there you see typical fracking operations, produced waters. You can see the vapors coming off them. This is a big health issue that's emerging. There are court cases all across America with the industry shelling out compensation money um, uh, in large quantities provided that you sign gagging orders. So it's very difficult for journalists to get the real story of what's happening, but it's beginning to come out. Um, and again, if you're tempted not to believe me um, or people like me, uh, and you don't know about Denton, Texas, the home of fracking, where fracking started, how about this for a story? Denton, Texas, um, has been fracked extensively. You can see the uh, water storage tanks and the drill rigs right next to homes. The industry is right in that town as it um, chases the, uh, the shale and has to drill all the wells that it does. You get a sense of some of the lorry movements. You get a sense of some of the noise and um, pollution at night. And if you don't know this, this is a Republican town. Um, Democrats um, virtually uh, never feature in elections in the town in Denton. It's Texas. Denton has banned fracking. And that happened a few months ago in the um, congressional uh, phase of elections. There was a well-resourced defense uh, by the oil and gas industry but it didn't counter the pushback by people on um, the downsides. So where does this industry want to come next? We all know um, the, uh, a very popular venue is, is the UK. We have lots of shale, and there are probably 
significant amounts of hydrocarbons locked up in those shale, in that shale. Like in America, can we get them out economically? Is it a good idea to have a business model where you're drilling at a far higher cost than what you can sell the oil and gas for? Uh, all those questions. But there's also, you know, the issue of what happened in Denton when you go to the Weald. Now, I know about the Weald because I live in the Weald, and that's me taking my dog for a walk, literally taking him for a walk. He's got a broken leg. And there's, um, there's the Weald behind. Uh, are we going to welcome fracking, we conservative uh, residents of the Weald? Uh, let's just have a little bit of another look at America. That um, area in the, uh, the... Most of the lighting is American cities at night. That area in the Oblong is uh, the fracking in the Bakken of North Dakota. They flare the gas. You can see it from space at night. This is the kind of thing that they get away with, even in America. The density of the wells in a sweet spot. This is an aerial photo of Texas. The red dots are where they have drilled, um, and that is a mile. Uh, let's go back to the Weald. Across the middle of the top two photos, that's about a mile. Just have a look at that and imagine it in the Weald. And they think they can get away with this. This was the first well that they tried to drill. It wasn't even a fracked well. It was in Balcombe a couple of years ago. And the local residents turned out in their thousands, backed up by green protesters. And an increasingly para paramilitary police force was forced to march the drill pipe through. You know, what a vision of the future is this compared to solar and storage and electric vehicles? Danger firearms in use. These are the... Um, nice-looking workers of the oil and gas industry at Balkan. And I'm sure you saw that. But this is what is going to kill it, the lorry movements, the water in, the toxic materials out. This is the typical day at a sweet spot in America. Imagine this on the leafy byways of Kent and Sussex. I tell you, I predict it ain't going to happen. It isn't going to come close to happening. And yet, and here are some statistics from an expert testimony at one of the planning reviews, um, 130-ton, three-axle truck passing in each direction every three minutes, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, for 20 years. That's a sweet spot um, in a uh, Kentish fracking area. And yet... Mr. Mestroye's business model. I left out his top fracking prospect. Of course, he can't frack in France. You all know why. Fracking's been banned in France. Not because of environmental reasons, probably because of threat to the nuclear industry, but it's been banned in France. So where does he want to go? He was asked in, um, in Korea at the World Energy Congress, the UK. That's his top prospect. So politically, we have a very, very important battle in the carbon war here, ongoing at the moment. We have to deconstruct the shale madness in this country, um, and it would be a good idea if we could do that before the election. And, you know, again, there are days when you sort of think, um, it, what is going on? It, why isn't it more obvious? The Wall Street Journal, global gas push stalls, and that is not going well. They're not drilling many wells here. In China, there are huge concerns about the water. In Poland, the shale's no good. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why it's not being exported. In the Financial Times, the very next day, Chancellor backs gas to fire up Britain.
And despite what Mr. Ambrose Evans Pritchard says internally in the business pages of the Daily Telegraph, on the front page, Minister's signal start of the great oil rush. There is a whiff of madness about this element of the war, I think. But we're going to win. So two other quick stories before I stop. Peak oil is dead. This is what you hear from the oil and gas industry. It's a mantra. Um, There's going to be no production of peak oil. The industry will keep on producing up and up and up, meeting demand far off into the future. The idea of a peak in production is dead, except it isn't, of course. In most oil-producing countries of the world, it's already happened. And if you stack them all up, and I like this diagram because it's from 2007. It was true in 2007. It's true now. It's a limited number of countries that still have growing production. Um, and for those of you who like the, um, the, the data here, it's worth going back to the pre-shale gas story in the United States. That whole spike, you remember the Dave Hughes figure, the spike of the shale oil um, coming up before it collapses again, um, started in 2008. In 2008, this is what the IEA came up with in terms of their concerns at staving off global peak. The existing crude oil fields were beginning to deplete at an alarming rate, a fast emptying rate. To meet projected demand, up above 100 million barrels a day, we're at about 92 now, they had this whole construction of what had to happen, you know, in places like Kashagan, in places like offshore Brazil, doesn't matter about the details, but that's the kind of capex deployments they're talking about. This is not based on economics, this diagram. This is just based on oil under the ground, whether it makes any sense economically to produce it or not. And their conclusion was, in 2008, the gap to make up by 20 30 is six Saudi Arabia's worth of oil. And you could tell, everyone could tell, watching those officials, they couldn't come out and say it um, directly because they're, uh, they're basically working for the governments, the US, the UK government and others. They didn't think there was a snowball's chance in hell of this happening. What um, had to happen, if it was to stay on course, is Saudi Arabia has to keep producing oil. Now, there's a little problem in Saudi Arabia. I describe a trip to Saudi Arabia just before the UN trip. That's Riyadh, lit up at night like a bonfire display. Um, And much of that electricity is being produced by burning oil in electric power plants. Turns out they don't have much gas in Saudi Arabia. The empty quarter is not called the empty quarter for nothing. So they're burning. They're they're literally shoveling their exchequer into furnaces in Saudi Arabia. And if you haven't seen this diagram, it's the second most important one um, I'll show you tonight. This is internal consumption mostly driven by the kinds of use of electricity that you need when you build glass cities in the desert. If that keeps going up and assuming they maintain their production, that's a big assumption. There's plenty of scope for that production to collapse. Why? What happens to exports? They begin to decline and by sometime between 2025 and 2030, they cross with domestic consumption. You know what that means? There's not a single drop of oil left for export in Saudi Arabia. Now, to be fair to them, they know about this. Their proposed solution is not finding more oil. Their proposed solution is solar and nuclear. Good luck with the nuclear, but solar might be a good idea. Um, But, you know, they've got to get a move on because uh, 
there are real issues. And in the WikiLeaks papers, one of the cables back to America showed that the intelligence community knows this really well. We need to help Saudi Arabia become the Saudi Arabia of solar. We have to do it soon, because if they keep burning oil this way, um, we haven't seen anything yet compared to what will happen domestically um, there. So one last chart on this story, and this is the single most important chart that um, I shall show you tonight. Um, it shows the remarkable story of the U.S. shale oil production here in Brown, going across from 2008, 2009, and growing to this incredible total that they're now producing now, which, given that the Saudis are still pumping at maximum rate, has depressed the global oil price. Helped a bit by the tar sands, but it's actually the U.S. shale that has propped up global oil production. And um, if you look at conventional crude oil, what's happening there, it's been going down since 2005. That's what the EIA, the, sorry, the IEA was so petrified about in 2008. What's happened since the oil price has started cratering? That's the rig count, the drilling rig count in North America. It's gone down 40% in just a couple of months. What do you think is going to happen next? What do you think is going to happen to this U.S. shale production, given that figure you saw from Dave Hughes's work, which wasn't even based on these kinds of assumptions? There is going to be a collapse of production in the U.S. shale. It'll take a few months to uh, work through. You can see it in the futures price of oil on, on the futures markets. You see it now in far-sighted analysts telling us that the oil price is going to go right back up again later in the year. And yet, what do our great leaders tell us about this? We're entering a new age of oil, Tony Hayward. Shale is a game changer. Renewables? Nah, forget that. Way too expensive. Oil depletion risk analysis. Peak oil is scaremongering. He said that to me, to my face in the boardroom in, um, in, in BP. Uh, the militaries are um, better somehow at seeing these risks. I don't know what's going on here, but um, both sides of the Atlantic, um, you see military studies saying, you know, we, Houston, we have a real problem here. Um, and a lot of it's psychological. This is the Bundeswehr, the German army, not the Wehrmacht, as I made the mistake of saying in front of a German audience a couple of weeks ago. Um, but in any event, pink oil is unavoidable. That's what they say. And um, in, in the UK, we have a group of companies who have studied this problem. Solar Center is one of them, but Virgin, SSE, Kingfisher. This is what we said in 2020, it's a 2010, sorry. There's going to be another crunch. And our projection was that uh, it would happen in 2015. It would happen at 92 million barrels a day. And then there would be a descent in global oil production, despite all the expectations um, afterwards. So right now, that is looking bang on the money. And um, that's another element of this drama. Um, the military, uh, as I mentioned, seem to you know, uh, be all over this problem, some more than others. And, and I have an unlikely alliance with a magnificent um, uh, war hero, Lieutenant Colonel Danny Davis, four tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he and I run this thing called the Transatlantic Energy Security Dialogue, desperately trying to warn in the face of all these narratives of plenty. Um, here's a quote from
from one of our articles in the Huffington Post. We know that we have a difficult mission, military language, too many toy soldiers when I was a boy. Um, this guy stepped on a roadside a sidebar, stepped on a roadside, um, what are they called? <coughs> I, yes, and uh, he didn't go off. Uh, that was one of his medals. For anyway, um, he gets it about peak oil, and we are doing the best we can with others to warn about this. Final story before I shut up is called, What Was I Thinking About? And the background for this is that the average age of the oil industry worker is 49. Can you imagine that? Um, the average retirement age is 55. This includes all the graduates, the young graduates that they employ. You know, there are an awful lot of aging blokes in this industry. And that is a problem. It's another lecture. I don't have time to go into it. But my previous book did look at um, neuroscience and the way we think. Um, and just a couple of things by way of, of background there. And forgive me if you know all about this, but it's vital for all the things we do. The neuroscientists in recent years have found that we have this tendency to be predictably irrational. That's their, their description of the typical human being and the collective decision-making of human beings. Um, and we have an incumbency effect, an endowment effect, it's called. We value things that we have, even if they're transparently, rationally inferior to what we might have just around the corner. We have this tendency, individually, collectively. And I think we see it really clearly in the drama of the carbon war, the civil war that we're living through. Um, and you can see it everywhere in big institutions. It's just like a civil war. You get believers in the two different end member belief systems under the same roof, in the same big energy companies, the same political parties. Just look at the Conservative Party. So we're weird, and our weirdness has to be factored into this. We're also capable of wiping out civilizations. We've done that historically. Somebody, some powerful group of actors, persuaded the poor people on Easter Island to cut down the last tree. I mean, what did you have to believe in to think that you're not even going to be left with a canoe to go to the next island? And I think we see that in the incumbency. They're desperate. They're producing all kinds of weird things. The other day we saw one of the most weird... This is from uh, one of their lobby organizations. If you haven't, I'm not going to inflict it on you. It's only a minute long, but it's too crude, if you'll pardon my... Um, the, girl, the girlfriend there is a barrel of oil, and, um, and the boyfriend ill-advisedly Ill dumps her, uh, you know, because she's got some problems of social license. Um, and he winds up regretting it because he basically freezes in the dark, and, of course, she finds another boyfriend. This rubbish is coming, <laughs> coming from grown-ups with an average age of 49 funded, uh, funding large advertising agencies. And I think, you know, and he's this guy, I've shown you him before, um, he's the one who was behind this. It's his uh, agency that came up with it. They, they have a, a name, you know, an anodyne name, the environmental something or other. You, you don't know that it's a front group for the oil industry, but it is. It's him and his outfit who are behind it on behalf of the... Um, the guys who run the American oil and gas industry. So the, the, the thought I'm going to leave you with is the sophistication 
that people like this are going to be facing in society. And I've got a wonderful microcosm for you of that, which comes from the UK Youth Coalition on Climate Change. It's a minute long, and this is the end of the talk. I can't think of a better place to stop, uh, provided I can make the technology work. My ex was a fossil fuel. I know. What was I thinking, right? One day be up, the next down. So volatile. He didn't exactly scream long term to me. He was just so dirty. And not in a good way. We broke up because he just lived in a complete fantasy world. Such a great guy. But then it just kind of came really clear that actually he was crumbling. We both had really contrasting views on what we wanted our futures to look like. He was just so insecure. He always had to trash everybody else. Before I knew it, there'd be some new disaster that he just wouldn't take any responsibility for. Yeah, I just woke up one day and realised, like, it's not worth being with someone who's just morally bankrupt. I mean, he said he was going to clean up his act, but it was a total lie. Whilst it might make life quite convenient, um, he might go on about how, how on earth would I get on without him. Actually, you know, there's loads of other alternatives. <laughs> Thank you for listening and turning up. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Last talk was very interesting and also, you, you know, to be quite funny. So it's a, a very good thing and very appreciated. Uh, so we'll have some questions and, uh, well, uh, pl please, uh, uh, because I, I'm quite sure that many people want to participate, so please have to try to, to have a question that is short enough so that we remember the start of the question. And, uh, well, there is a microphone that will be uh, around and you, you should be talking uh, through the microphone because we record it, so if you, if you don't do so, then uh, you, you, you won't be uh, uh, recorded properly. Thank you. So we, we may start. Yes, the, the person in the fourth uh, row with the red uh, pullover. Hi, um, I wonder if you have any free advice for someone starting a new career in clean energy or green economy? And also a second quick question is, um, what did the CFD auction last week um, say about or have an impact on the solar and renewables? Thanks. Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, a uh, bit difficult to answer the first one. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think the average age in the clean tech industry is a lot lower than 49. So um, I can only advocate getting in any way that you can. And, of course, a lot of companies are, are hiring. There's a lot of growth going on. There's a lot of uh, potential. The CFD um, auction obviously was a, was a big disappointment for the solar industry in the UK, but a predictable one. We knew what was going to happen. My own company didn't even take part in it. Um, and, you know, it was designed to basically grow offshore wind and, and get rid of large um, ground-mounted solar. So um, I think the best way to view the market here in the UK, the solar market in the UK, is that the government at the moment 
has made a policy decision to sort of keep the the UK as a as a as a championship market, not a premiership market. Uh, they could, if they wanted to, create an amazing premiership market with redolent with job creation potential. Uh, but they've elected not to do that, and the reason that they've elected to do that is the civil war. I mean, there are people in the Conservative Party and the coalition who want to do it, but there are people who including the Chancellor, who want the whole thing basically shut down. So that's one manifestation of the, the Civil War. The thing about the shale narrative is my belief is, you, you know, the, the Prime Minister in Davos said yet again that he's going to frack his way to cheap gas and so much of it that he's going to bring manufacturing back to Britain. This is madness. Who is advising him? Even if he gets cheap gas, he's going to bankrupt his oil and gas industry, as is happening in America. Um, and, uh, you know, then he's not going to get the cheap gas because his own voters will be dying in a ditch to stop it happening in Kent and Sussex and, and, and the other places where they would have to go. <coughs> So um, at some point, this is what I keep saying to them when I get an opportunity, they are going to have to do a U-turn. It's going to be embarrassing, but get it out of the way. Get it out of the way well ahead of the election. If they have to do it three days before the election, because half the American oil industry, in April, the banks in America have to make big decisions about this mountain of junk debt that they've deployed. If the banks start pulling the plug on the American oil and gas industry, and you have mass bankruptcies in April, with the British election in May, their economic credibility is going to be seriously, toxically threatened. So what I um, say to them whenever I get the chance is do it now, get it out of the way, because um, if you do it late, uh, you, you will have real big problems. So that's the political significance of that. And the, the question about the CFD is just triggered it. Sorry, I went off on one. Yes, so the person on the thief row with the grey pullover. So that... that, that um, how do you see things developing in Germany, which seems to be going in a more sane direction? Well, um, you know, they, they have their problems, but uh, I think they're quality problems. So, you know, before E.ON did its 180-degree U-turn, it was in a phalanx of big German utilities who were talking to the Conservatives and saying the same kinds of things. This has gone too far. You're locking us. You're destroying us, basically. Um, and, you know, not doing the obvious thing and saying we're going to have to change fundamentally. Um, but th the outcome of that has been, of course, that the first company has, big company has changed. Um, and despite all the pressure to hold back the German renewables markets, the figures for 2014 just came out, the growth of German uh, renewables in 2014. If you cheat a bit and split up hard coal and lignite, renewables now are the single biggest um, provider of electricity on the German grid, and it's still growing. And if it keeps growing at the rate that it did actually grow in 2014, despite all the pushback from E.ON and RWE and Vattenfall and all the rest, if it keeps growing like that, the Germans have a target to get to 80% renewables by 2050. And 
At the rate of growth in 2014, they'd get to 80% renewables in the mix by 2041, well ahead of schedule. The Germans are doing well, and we need to copy the Germans. So the person in front on the second row... Um, what are the implications for the renewable industry now that the price of oil has dropped so much? I'd, um, I'd just completely turn that question around, you know, and um, ask it a different way and say uh, the problems of the low oil price, who's hurting more, the incumbency or the insurgency? Um, a few years ago, if you'd said there's going to be a low oil price, perhaps a protracted low oil price, that would have been problematic for the renewables industry. But now, I think you've got big energy companies looking at the full panoply of the dramas that I've described for you tonight, of which the low oil price is just one, and they're beginning to say, we've, we've, got, to, we've got to shift. We've got to get onto this trajectory. We've got to copy E.ON. And so I think our problems pale to insignificance compared to the uh, insurgent incumbency's problems. I also, as you will appreciate, think the oil price is going right back up again in the second half of the year. <laughs> so the person with the grey shirt uh, in the back... Thanks, Jerry. Uh, great talk. I agree with every single word. I was a bit concerned about that uh, early... Um, I don't know whether you can, the technology will allow you to go back. The early slide you showed from Woking, of their, how they were back... Was this right? They were backing up their PV with, um, with gas? Yeah, gas-fired CHP. <laughs> well... Uh, yeah, I just want to make the point um, that that curve you saw that, that sort of matched the PV by going down in the summer. Uh, we in the UK have a, a, a very large resource. We're very well blessed with a resource which um, has, uh, has a shape like that, resource shape like that. Uh, 2% of the uh, carbon footprint of... Um, of, of uh, fossil fuel, um, and if that's, that's wind. <laughs> and, and as I explained in my book, uh, The Burning Answer, and I'm most grateful for the endorsement you gave for that book, um, because of that, because we our wind resource is complementary uh, in the UK to the PV, we actually could get an all-renewable electricity supply earlier than, uh, than Germany. So yeah. please tell Woking not to use fossil fuels to play. It's I, I was making a pathetic um, effort to be, um, you know, um, to exercise real politic. As you know, I agree with everything you say. And, of course, in Germany they've, they've um, done actual experiments mixing a matter with wind and solar, and it's, it, it is the perfect Match and the combi craft work experiment um, has shown that they conducted there the German economics ministry that they could run a modern German economy on 100% renewables, mostly wind and solar. That's without storage or significant amount, amounts of storage, and they're going to have storage as well. You, you know, that's coming down the track obviously very fast. So it's a very bullish um, picture, and in the renewables industries, we can be you know, hugely 
um, optimistic. And when people talk about 100% renewables by 2050, 35 years from now, um, you know, they, they get freaked out by that. But the first thing that comes into my head as I walk around with my iPhone 6, he said boastfully, is that 35 years ago I um, did a PhD thesis and I typed it on a typewriter. <laughs> the person with the pink, uh, I think that's a pullover <laughs> at the back. What um, percentage of the, the new renewables market do you think will be devoted to um, the kind of new technologies for using waste, turning w what are now waste products into resources for biofuels and that sort of thing? So using waste plastics or um, even municipal waste, turning those into fuel sources. Is that, is that kind of like a a small part of the market, or do you see that as, as a big development? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have a considered a, opinion on that. I think, you know, one of the luxuries of um, the kind of um, vantage point that I try and take on all this is that you can be a bit technology agnostic and just sort of point out, as long as you know what people are saying about um, about the technologies that you're invested in, as it were, um, there's a lot of mileage you can get from those, as you heard in that exchange I just had with Professor Barnum. Um, but uh, there's, I'm sure that there's potential. I mean, I know enough people whose technical um, abilities I have huge respect for who just rave about how much we could get from domestic waste particularly, but also industrial waste. I, I don't know. I don't have a considered opinion. I just point out that the team at um, um, Berkeley and Stanford, uh, Mark Jacobson's team, I, I'm not, I might be talking to a super expert here, but you know, just for other people answering the question, they've, they've studied what it would take to get to 100% renewables globally and state by state all across America. And it is just so um, encouraging. And they only use solar, wind, and water technologies. They don't use biomass, biofuel technologies at all, um, you know, for, for whatever reason. And, um, and they say that you can get to a 100% world by 2030 without mobilizing any technology any faster than we have already mobilized technologies in the history of commerce. Um, of course, we're not going to do that because we're pushing against our own collective neuroscience and um, the potency, the, the, the residual potency of the incumbency. But that's what we could do if we tried without any biomass or biofuels, they say. Thank you. So the person with the gray jacket. Hello. Um, yeah, I just wanted to clarify uh, one of the early graphs you showed us. It was just after you had the picture of the houses with the solar panels and the mini plugged in. And um, you were talking about the potential return on investment on people getting solar panels. I just want to check, is that for um, people who are investing in the solar industry or for people who, people who are getting solar panels and, and whatnot on their houses? In the home, domestic. So that's you buying this kit from wherever, Ikea, 
um, and, and um, the lo local electric car showroom and deploying it yourself. That's yeah. saying that you, you yeah. would then have that, you, you know, you yeah. make the initial investment and then you've got yeah. the money come back in. Okay. The person at the back with the black uh, shirt. Yes, you, please. Thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to talk about one of the challenges, like political economy-wise, with solar, and it's the rare earth minerals, and most of them are in China. And thinking about like trade and how to get, you know, all these minerals to power these solar panels, and the challenges for that in the future. Um, yes, uh, that's going to be a problem area, but a couple of things to say. I mean, they're called rare earths. They're not actually that rare. It depends on the economics. You can open up mines elsewhere in the world. Different solar technologies require different trace metals. So um, at the risk of getting too technical and boring for people, there, there's a thing called thin film, where that definitely is a problem. If you, if you have your work stock mostly in thin film, it's not. It's, it's currently mostly, as you doubtless know if you're researching, Searching it in crystalline silicon, where there are fewer resource constraints. So I think with recycling, with you know, um, uh, uh, an approach to getting the necessary resources that just isn't always sort of zeroed in entirely on on the cheapest available supplier, then these are problems that we could overcome. That said, that said. Um, I often get criticised for not mentioning energy efficiency enough, and I think rightly so. You know, you can't just blast away in a world that's doing next to nothing about energy efficiency and think you're going to get endless supplies from, from solar. That's almost certainly going to be a recipe for disaster. So the person with the grey... Yes, you, you please, with the... The third row. Thank you. I just wanted to say I. I just wanted to say I don't think. I just wanted to say I don't think you should apologize for using the term civil war. In, um, in Canada, our present very right-wing pro-oil government. Um, is trying to build four extensive pipelines from the tar sands, which you've got a picture of, because they want to expand them by three times. And uh, Jim Hansen of NASA has said that that would be game over for the world. But they're still gung-ho on this. And right now in the Parliament, um, Canadian Parliament, they're pushing um, a bill, an anti-terror bill, through this week that will basically criminalize anti-pipeline protesters. It's so vague on the term terror. So I just wondered if you'd comment on pipeline. No, I am difficult to comment other than but to agree, I mean, this would be a disaster if uh, the tar sands were significantly um, expanded. But again, I would draw comfort from the economics. Most of that um, province is way up the carbon cost curve. And um, I think that they're going to find it very difficult to keep justifying 
the um, exploitation of those deposits to their investors alone, but never mind about the social license from society. As you know, um, President Obama's just made the right decision on the Keystone pipeline. That's another, you know, small but significant victory for the light side in the carbon war. Thank you very much. For, as you can imagine, it's mostly um, ladies who object to my use of, of, of the war thought. Uh, so I'm going to quote you. <laughs> so, yes, you please in the first row. Hi. Um, can you comment on the uh, need for infrastructure for electric cars and also to update the grid so that you can, obviously, renewables are much more intermittent, so you need a lot more technology and data gathering, etc.? Yeah, um, uh, this, this is the question that always makes me come overall. I'm not a technologist, but we put a person on the moon 45 years ago, and I just don't buy it when um, guys you know, with vested interests in the grid tell me we're going to have problems with, with load, load matching. <laughs> That's a statement of belief system. Thanks. Um, are you aware of uh, what Singapore is doing at the moment? No. Um, they, <laughs> that's um, they actually have the first rooftop subsidy-free market, um, so they have solar rooftop that's going quite well, and they realised um, basically no, no part of Singapore will be covered in cloud simultaneously. So they said, okay, we're always going to have somewhere that's sunny. Um, so they're now looking to link up um, the solar resources that they have, so they always have somewhere generating energy and then to distribute it across Singapore. Great. <laughs> Well, I think we have time for one more question, unless I'm wrong. So maybe uh, you on the, that would be the sixth row with the, I think you have a white shirt, but. Thanks. Um, we talked about the international oil companies and utility companies, but could you maybe comment a little bit about the future of national oil companies and coal companies as well? Uh, because we know they hold a lot of the unburnable carbon. Mm. Yeah. Um, l let me do the coal companies first. I mean, you know, lots of analysts now believe that the global coal industry is in structural decline. Um, there's an article in the time I keep quoting the Telegraph, that everyone's going to think I'm a Tory voter. <laughs> um, there was an art, a great article by the commodities editor in the Telegraph this morning talking about the collapse of, of coal demand in China. And half the seaborne coal trade is aimed at China and their demand is going down. So coal is almost certainly in structural decline. And if you're in coal, you have to get out of it. It isn't going to be used. Um, it's sort of your, your fellow fossil fuels, the lady in the um, oil barrel and others, have ganged up on you and, and are going, you know, they argue now coal is, is the villain. We have to get rid of coal, and if we do that, we can burn all the oil and gas. That's one of their backstop arguments. So um, no honour among thieves there. So um, 
Uh, utilities in oil and gas is different. You can engage them with your hand on your heart and say, look, if you, if you move now, if you go for it now, if you identify the end game, it's not so scary. 35 years from now, maybe a bit longer if you want, the world's going to be zero carbon. What's your role in that? Envision it and map backwards to your current business plan. This is what must be happening in Eon, excuse me, I'm losing my voice, in Eon right now. You can imagine the walls will be covered in flip charts and, and post-it notes and goodness knows what. Um, and here there's, there's another factor for these companies that I think is significant. It's first mover advantage. And um, at the risk of being disloyal to my friends in the renewables industries, they um, clearly the big energy companies are going to have to come at this problem with a checkbook. When they've made the decision they're going to switch, they're not going to grow businesses organically. They are going to go on great shopping sprees across the world. And that's what we can expect to see from Eon. Now, when they do that, um, how can I put this decorously? The, um, you know, there is not a surfeit of hugely attractive companies ready and waiting to be um, merged with them. So the first mover advantage, those who come late are going to find it much more, more difficult. Um, so I think that's an interesting, and that's how I see the argument with the oil and gas companies and the utilities. Very different from the coal companies. If you're in coal, bad luck. You're going to wind up like the horse people did in, uh, in 1905. Um, uh, the the uh, national oil companies, so the Saudi Aramcos and the rest of it, it's really, really interesting to watch the Saudis at the climate negotiations. For many, many years, they were just utterly obstructive and, um, you know, worked with ExxonMobil and others to completely try and torpedo the process. That isn't happening anymore. They know this is real. They know that there is going to be some kind of set of outcomes, and they're looking for... Um, a role in that world. So hence the discussion about solar, um, generating a domestic solar industry using the petrodollars to you know, build up new... That, that's very active discussion out there. I know I'll describe it in the book. I've been out to Saudi Arabia and seen it. Um, then uh, the other thing that is relatively good news for them is that you remember the, the carbon cost curve that I showed of oil? They're, they're down the bottom. Most of their oil is down the bottom. So it's going to be the cheapest oil um, to actually use, and that will be good for them relative to others. But that said, they, like everybody else, have got this real short-term view and you could argue that what they're doing at the moment just drilling madly uh, knowing that the shale has temporarily got a bit of a boom uh, and so you know we're slightly above supply slightly above demand just so as the young lady said so volatile sometimes up sometimes down you don't get that with solar um, you know uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous game they're playing. They need to take a longer-term view, and the most important thing they have to do is stop burning that oil in the electric power plants. I mean, if they do that, they're really destabilizing security in the world, ultimately, because of you know, what, what might happen if that society begins to implode. 
Um, and number number two, they're um, they're incinerating their own exchequer. So uh, those of us who get the chance to ever so politely make that point to the kingdom really have a duty to, to do so. And that's what the WikiLeaks, um, the, the security services, were reporting back to, to Washington. And, you know, people know this in the, in, in the, in the intelligence communities. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy, and also I thank all of you for, for coming yes, and making this, uh, this uh, event very interesting. Thank you. Thank you.